0: We have a good bit of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, and uh, you're back to having to do a bit of work. Um, There's not gonna be anything displayed in front of me this this morning with uh, scripture verses, so you're gonna have to use your Bibles and follow along. We ended last week with the covenant being, excuse me, with the Ark of the Covenant being captured by the Philistines, and the Israelites must have wondered What does the capture of the ark say about God? Does that mean that God is weak, that God was defeated, that God could not come to the defense of the Israelites? Last week I made a comparison of the ark being captured with, in our day, the Bible being captured. And uh, I said that as Eli trembled for the ark, I trembled for the Bible. But this morning we're going to see that God can take care of himself. That uh, God is very capable of watching out for his own needs and his own glory. Just as God preserved the ark, he is also going to preserve his word. Uh, that is our emphasis this morning and uh, God's word will prevail. Paul spoke of his imprisonment and said, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, for the word of God is not bound. They could put Paul into prison, but they couldn't put the word of God into prison. And so Paul's exhortation to Timothy is preach the word diligently in season and out of season whether it's a time when the Word of God is cherished or does not continue to preach His Word. This morning, we're going to be emphasizing the fact that God is able to bring glory to Himself. Our theme is that God is able to humble the proud and bring glory to Himself through a demonstration of His power. First, God brings glory to Himself by humbling the God of the Philistines by showing His power. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The people seek to exalt their god Dagon by bringing the Ark into Dagon's temple. If you look at verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 5, it says, Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. The Philistines viewed the defeat of the Israelites by the Philistines not only as a military defeat, but also a defeat of the God of Israel they show, they saw this as a demonstration of the superior power of Dagon. Nevertheless, the ark was taken to the temple to be worshipped as a lesser god. The Philistines worshipped a plurality of gods, and Dagon was viewed as the father of Baal or the father of gods. So it fit very well with them to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple and to worship it as a lesser god uh, under the authority and power of Dagon who had just gotten them a great victory. But God reveals himself as greater than Dagon. The next day, they found Dagon prostrate before the Ark in a pose of worship. If you look at verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So this is an idol. And that idol just topples over, but topples over in a very demonstrable way that prostrated itself before the ark of the covenant uh, as in a uh, place of Worship. Well, instead of joining Dagon and bowing before God, they pick him up and they put him back in his position. So you can just imagine, they walk in, find him sitting there, so they pick him up and walk back and put him back on his pedestal. However, Dagon is further humiliated. Verse 4. But when they rose the next morning, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark, just as the day previous, but with this addition. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were being cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So this time they walk in, and the hands of this idol are gone, uh, cut off, and the head is cut off. Nevertheless, the priests continue to venerate Dagon. Verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Rather than to see the import of Dagon's hands and head being cut off and recognizing his inferiority to the true and living God, instead, since Dagon's head and hands had landed up on the threshold of the temple that in their mind, consecrated this threshold. Rather than seeing the defeat of this God, instead they said, wow, his hands and his head's on the threshold. We better not step on that threshold. That is sacred. That is
1: holy place. They still did not submit to the God of Israel. They did not contemplate the significance
0: that Dagon could not even save himself, much less deliver them. Well, God brings glory to himself by not only humbling the god Dagon, but humbling the Philistines themselves through a demonstration of his power. First, God humbles the people of Ashdod. God actively brings hardship to the people of Ashdod, verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Now, the narrator introduces us to a great irony at this point. This is one of the great uh, verses in the Bible. The the Bible has a a sense of humor. And there are a a number of really pithy, nifty statements in the Scripture. And this is one of them. Having just described the hands of Dagon being cut off in verse 5 and the head of Dagon being cut off in verse 5. Now, in verse 6, says, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. Get the connection? Dagon's hands were cut off. God's hand was heavy upon them. Uh, Circle that, draw a line, uh, for it speaks volumes of how this narrative is to be viewed. Further, The word heavy in verse 6, where it says that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him, uh, that is a word that really could be translated glorious. Glorious was his hand upon them. Remember the children of Israel had said the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. Well, God is able to bring glory to himself. Uh, His hand was heavy, glorious upon them. The hardship of the people of Ashdod encountered at God's hand is now described in verse 6. It says uh, that uh, he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. The people recognize that the hardship they were encountered was coming from the God of Israel. The people of Ashdod are able to connect the dots. They see what happened to Dagon. They see the tumors that they now have, and they attribute it all to the power of God. Verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how how things were, that's they're connecting the dots, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is heavy against us. Further, they attribute not only the hardships that they are facing to the Lord's doing, but also that it is God of Israel that has done these things to Dagon as well. At the end of verse 7, for his hand is against us and against Dagon, our God. So they realize that uh, they are defenseless before God. They can't stand before him, neither can their God. Nevertheless, they continue to worship Dagon and not submit to a living and true God. For they refer, in verse 7, at the end, to Dagon, our God. They are still professing faith in him. They still are demonstrating allegiance to Dagon, Uh, but yet they recognize the superiority of God. But in so doing, they reject God. For they say in verse 7, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. They want the ark and, in fact, God to depart from them. They don't want God's help. Rather, they merely want God to go away. Uh, They don't want God to bother them. Uh, But they are not willing to submit and honor God. Well, God then humbles the people of Gath. The leader of the Philistines have a meeting to decide what should be done regarding the ark. Verse 8. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? The leaders of the Philistines decide to send the ark to another leading city under their control. Uh, verse 8. End of the verse. They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. I don't know how the people of Gath thought about that, uh, uh, but uh, they said, uh, send it there. <clears throat> if the men of the city suffered no ill health, then it would mean that what happened to Ashdod was merely a coincidence. So well, This was a test, as it were. Send it over there. Let's see what happens. Well, God humbles the people of Gath also. God's hand is at work against them as well. Verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city. So they are terrified and don't know what to do in the middle of verse 9, causing a very great panic. And this uh, disease, same as the one that had come upon the people of Ashdod, now comes upon the people of Gath. And it refers to both the young and the old at the end of verse 9. So this is a perversive uh, and pervasive, and we find out later on that it even comes upon the lords, the rulers. So no one is exempt from this. Uh, No one is uh, free from this disease that is being sent. Uh, We are in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of this uh, disease, coronavirus, but it seems to have different effects upon different people. It seems to be different for the young and for the old. But not in this instance. It's saying both young and old, uh, powerful, weak, you name it. Those with existing conditions, those with non-previous existing conditions get this disease. Right? This, is, this is something unique.
1: So God humbles then the people of Ekron. Verse 10.
0: So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. It says in verse uh, 10 that uh, as soon as the God came to Ekron, uh, they didn't need any time to pass. <laughs> they didn't need to see what was going to happen. Uh, they were able to put the dots together. And they said, wow, now they're bringing it to us and we're going to have the same Situation, So they request the ark to be sent back to Israel. Uh, in verse 11. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place. Quit bringing it around to different cities. Uh, they had taken it to, two, to uh, uh, three cities now. They have five major cities. They said, no point in continuing to move this from one place to the next. Send it back. Get rid of it. Let it go home. They gave up resisting God and they said, just let it return. Now the question is how are they going to get it back? How are they going to return it? Uh, How are they going to pull that off? So the leaders consult the priests, the priests of Dagon, that is. Chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. What shall we do? Well, the priests instruct them to honor the God of Israel. Verse 3, they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Uh, You need to make an offering unto this God. So here are these false priests, the priests of Dagon, saying, you need to honor the God of Israel. The people were instructed to honor the God of Israel to take away their suffering. This means of honoring God is to acknowledge that the tumors came from him, First Samuel chapter 6, verses 3-5. to 5. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your hands. First Samuel chapter 6, verse 5, So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the, the land and give glory to God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land and now just a moment about these mice Uh, for these are introduced the first time uh, what does this have to do with uh, these tumors well there are a number of commentators that think that this uh, particular tumor uh, was much like uh, the bubonic plague and uh, the sores that came upon individuals the bubonic plague uh, had its uh, source in rats uh, mice and they say this could be a similar kind of disease whatever it is ultimately the source obviously is of god the leaders warned them not to fight against god by hardening their hearts as the egyptians hardened their hearts when the plagues came upon them verse 6 why should you harden your hearts as the egyptians and pharaohs hardened their hearts after you dealt severely with them did not send the people away and they departed So there's this parallel drawn, as we saw last week, they made mention to the uh, plagues in Egypt. Now they recognize that these tumors, this disease, is much like what God had done to the Egyptians. And uh, they said uh, the Egyptians were foolish. They hardened their hearts. They tried to resist God and didn't get them very far. Uh, Don't you do that. Uh, You submit to God. Send this thing back. Let him go. All right? So now they compare letting the Ark go with letting the children of Israel go in the land of Egypt. Uh, don't, ho- don't hold on to it as a trophy, as a prize, as a victory of war. But recognize your defeat and let the Ark go. So number three, the process of sending the Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelites. On the one hand, it's quite obvious that all the troubles that came upon them were due to God's judgment, uh, but nonetheless they devised a test in returning the ark to the covenant to Israel to make sure that all that had come upon them was in fact the Lord's doing. So they devised a rather ingenious test. Verse 7. Now then take and prepare a new cart, and two milk cows on which there never has come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but their calves, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of the gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering, then send it off and let it go its way. So the the question is, will these cows act contrary to both their nature and their maternal instincts? Or will they take this, Ark of the Covenant directly back to the land of Israel. When I say against their nature, they are told to yoke cows to a cart who have never been yoked, right? Uh, Meaning that these cows have, have never experienced a yoke on their neck before. Cows have to be trained to work together and to pull a cart. That is not a part of their natural breeding. Uh, Cows are one of the dumbest animals on the face of the earth. And having grown up on a farm, I can say that with absolute certainty. And uh, for these cows to be yoked and to together pull a cart is remarkable in and of itself. Then the second aspect of the test was the maternal instincts, because they had just been given birth to calves. And uh, cows are very maternal, and they will nurse their calves, and they will be uh, concerned for their offspring. Well, take the calves away and see what these cows do. Do they s- look for their, their calves, or do they go on a beeline to uh, the land of Israel? And the answer is they go on a beeline to the uh, land of Israel. So this is a pretty good test, and it shows that God is really in this. So the test is carried out, and God is seen at work, verses 10 through 12. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up the calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bathsheemish along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Shemash. So that brings us to the third element of this story, and that is God brings glory to himself by humbling the Israelites as well as through the demonstration of his power. The humbling of the Israelites. Initially, the men of Beth Shemesh are glad to see the ark. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. They rejoiced to see it. They were excited that the ark was returned. But I'd like to to read to you a a lengthy comment from the Cornerstone uh, Biblical Commentary. Uh, It's written by uh, Robert Vinoy. And uh, he says this, and I quote, With the return of the ark to Israel, the question became, how will the ark be received by the people of Israel? As Israel should have learned, the return of the ark did not necessarily mean the return of Yahweh to his people as the guarantor of their security and safety. That would depend upon whether or not the people returned to Yahweh when the inhabitants of Bishima saw the ark coming up the road toward their village They were overjoyed. But the motivation for this joy is not altogether clear. Was it joy induced by a desire to again have the throne seat of Yahweh in their midst as a symbol of his royal authority over them and as a reminder of their obligation to love and serve him with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength? Or was it joy induced merely by their total surprise at the recovery of a national symbol that had been captured in a military defeat by an enemy nation, a national symbol that they did not expect to ever see again. So is this a rejoicing because of what it means about God, or is this their continuation? I talked about how the ark was a symbol last week of a national pride. And the question is, are they rejoicing? Have they learned something from this incident of submitting to God, or is this just rejoicing in the national symbol coming back? That's the premise of where we're going with what follows. Well, they make an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord, verses 14 and 15. The cart came into the field of Joshua of and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the Ben and Beth offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices
1: on that day to the Lord. Although we are told of a ritual
0: in which the cows had pulled the cart were slain for a sacrifice to Jehovah, and offered on a fire made from the wood of the cart, we are not told of any genuine repentance, any rededication to the covenant faithfulness on the part of the people of Beth uh, There is no confession of sin. There is no contriteness for what had taken place. Uh, they are just back to offering sacrifices. Remember, they were offering sacrifices before the ark was taken. Now they're offering sacrifices again. The five leaders of the Philistines witnessed all this and went back home. The test had been completed. It was God who had done all these things, verse 16. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So ends the narrative of the Philistines, and we're back to centering upon the children of Israel once again in 1 Samuel. The Israelites establish a lasting testimony depicting the return of the Ark and the power of God over the Philistines, verses 17 and 18. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. As golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. Now these words, the great stone beside which they set down the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bashemish. The witness is that though the Israelites had lost the battle against the Israelites months earlier,
1: and the Ark of the God had been captured, it was the Israelites who had been
0: defeated, not God. God himself was responsible for the returning of this ark. Uh, no human intervention, uh, no uh, role by the Israelites whatsoever. It was purely God demonstrating His power. Now, and this is what is unique about this passage, God humbles the sons of Beshemish and disciplines them for disrespect that they showed to the ark, verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beshemish. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, that almost comes out of the blue as you read this narrative. It doesn't come as you you might think it would. Uh, You might think that God is going to rejoice in the fact that these offerings have been made, they've uh, cut up the cart, Uh, they have offered the cows. Uh, why in the world would God slay these individuals for looking upon the ark? Well, in the book of Numbers, it is described as to how the the ark is to be treated. And in Numbers chapter 4, verse 5, it says, when the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And then in verse 20, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. So even the the priests were not allowed to gaze upon the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in defense, you might say, well, what could they do? Here this Ark shows up in the cart uncovered, and uh, how can they be held responsible for looking at this ark that's uncovered sitting on the back of a cart, what in the world are they supposed to do with it? Well, if you read carefully, the problem is the men of Bathsheba put the ark on display like a trophy. Look at verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beshemish, because they looked upon the ark. That word to look upon doesn't merely mean to glance. It means to to gaze upon with a lusting. Look upon the ark. He struck so many men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now verse 15. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. Both the Ark of the Covenant and these tumors, these golden tumors, are placed on a stone for display. Much like the Philistines had put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon to show that Dagon was superior to the God of Israel, The Israelites put the tumors next to the Ark of the Covenant to demonstrate that God is greater than the tumors. And they went around cheering and praising and gazing upon that Ark. That is not at all the way in which God told them to treat the Ark. Uh, He said, thou shalt have no other gods Before me, that doesn't mean that he is the number one God. That means in my presence, in my sight. You shall not mingle the worship of God with any other foreign God or entity. God and God alone is to be
1: worshipped and to be praised. Now, notice the response of the Israelites As
0: a result of God slaying 70 of their men, the men of Bashemish fear God, verse 20. Then the men of Bashemish said, who is able to stand before the Lord his holy God? Who is able to resist this God when he is, Angry. They ask a good question. They recognize he is holy. He is to be treated distinctly. However, like the Philistines, the men of Bethesemus desire to send the Ark of the Covenant away. Notice verse 20. Then the men of Bethesemus said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Just like the Philistines Philistines said, get that ark out of here. Now the Israelites are saying, get that ark out of here. Rather than to confess their sins, rather than to repent, rather than come to a recognition that the whole time that they've been viewing this ark, they've been viewing it wrongly, from before the war until after the war, they still haven't come to grips with their their sinfulness, and for not following the scriptures in the way in which sacrifices were to be offered, etc.
1: In this passage, they're no different than the Philistines. And that's what God wants them to see. They are no different
0: than the Philistines. And God is just as displeased with the Israelites at this point as he is with the Philistines. Their worship is for show.
1: It's not the true and legitimate worship of God. They announce to the people
0: of Kirith jerim that they should come and take the ark, verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The family of Abinadab ministers to the ark, verse 1, and the men of kiriath came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to take charge of the ark of the Lord. Although the ark had returned to Israel, it was not returned to its home in the tabernacle in Shiloh. Uh, We don't know why. Uh, Some have uh, suggested that the tabernacle was destroyed, uh, when the children, uh, when the Philistines had uh, conquered the uh, uh, Israelites months earlier and that that tabernacle was no longer standing they could not take it back they could have at least take it to Shiloh where it originally came from but for whatever reason they don't take it back there that's rather curious instead they take it to another uh, spot brought to the house of Benadab. And it says in verse 12, from that day that the ark was lodged at Kirth a long time passed, some 20 years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 20 years is going to pass before we get into uh, chapter 7, verse 3. And we're going to see a repentance. We're going to see a change. We're going to see Samuel rise up and and a lot of good things are going to happen in
1: chapter 7. But right now, For 20 years, the people are weeping because God
0: is away from them, because they know that God is displeased, because they realize that that God is angered with them. But understand that for 20 years, they're still unrepentant. Even though they understand that God is angry with them they aren't willing to do anything significant about it. They're willing to go through motions. They're willing to offer sacrifices. They're willing to do things on their own terms, in their own ways, but they're not willing to consecrate themselves by obedience and following God's word and following God's commands. So the question is, what do we learn from a passage such as this? Well, I'd say the following things. First, to see the greatness of god and his ability to humble others it should humble us in our service of god there is a rather popular cliche in some christian circles that says this and i quote god has no hands but our hands and god has no feet but our feet end quote. meaning If God is going to accomplish anything at all, it requires us. We need to yield our hands and our feet to God,
1: uh, or nothing is going to get done. I submit to you, that's a wrong view of God. God's work does not depend upon us. God can do very well without us. God can defend his own glory. God can demonstrate his own power. God is God who created the heavens and the earth. It's a good reminder that whatever is accomplished is accomplished by God's power. Sometimes he chooses
0: to work through us, but he doesn't need us and oftentimes he works despite us. Oftentimes he overcomes our
1: weaknesses and our failures. Secondly, we should recognize
0: our limitations as human beings and as believers before God. We are in a unique time in our world, not just in United States, but in the entire world.
1: It's good for us to realize that God can close down our worship. It's good for us to realize that God can humble us. That God
0: can keep us from fulfilling our plans, our desires, our goals. So many plans have been made many people's desires and yet they've come to, pro- they've, they've to naught.
1: People have had to change their plans, had, had to change what they were going to do. Change their workplace. It's good for us to realize that God can
0: throw a wrench into our economy. James warns about the person who says that uh, Next year, we're going to get rich and go to yonder place, and uh, they're they're going to be wealthy, et cetera, et cetera. Who knows what next year holds?
1: It's pure arrogance to talk about what the economy is going to be next year. We're dependent upon God for
0: our economy. We're dependent upon God for His blessing. We're dependent upon God for our health. We're dependent upon God for our safety. That is the message of chapters 5 and 6
1: and the first two verses of chapter 7. It's good to bow down before God. It is good to understand that God's word will prevail. The truth is, we serve a God
0: who is immeasurably powerful. The one who brought up the ark from the Philistines is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And he will accomplish his purposes. His victory does not depend on us any more than it depended upon the people of Bashemish. Trust in God and do not limit him. God is to be feared but not rejected. We are to approach God solely through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one mediator
1: between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If you reject Christ, He rejects your worship. And he is a God who will punish. If your worship is rejected, there is a hell.
0: We're to learn from passages such as this that there needs to be a holy reverence as we come into the presence of God, recognizing we can only come through Jesus Christ. And while I said I tremble for the scriptures, I don't tremble for God. And I don't tremble for his word. For his word is powerful. He will accomplish his ends. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not there, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. It will accomplish that which I
1: please. And it will prosper in everything to which I have sent it. In the book of Isaiah, God had said to a captive Israel, Isaiah 59.1 Behold, behold, The hand of the Lord is not shortened. God's hand is not cut off. Never doubt God's sovereignty. Never question his purpose. Humble yourself before the Lord. Behold, the Lord's
0: hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. God is at work. God is at work. And I believe that God is at work in humbling not only our nation, but the people of God in particular.
1: For Israel is the main point of this passage. And as the people of God,
0: uh, I pray that we would have a renewed confidence in the word of God. That it will accomplish the purpose for which he has sent it. And we don't lose sight of the importance of proclaiming that word. And we don't let our focus be on all kinds of tangential things that have nothing to do with the proclamation of the word of God. God has shown us through this
1: pandemic that His Word is able to continue to go forth. And it has. Nothing has disrupted the preaching of His Word. Acknowledge His greatness, acknowledge His goodness. Keep the Word of God central. And lift him up and glorify him, a God who can take
0: care of himself. Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice in your greatness. We rejoice in your power. Lord, uh, who can understand your ways? You have told us that our ways are not your ways. Our thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your thoughts than our thoughts, your ways than our ways. Lord, keep us from putting you in a box. Keep us from limiting you. Keep us from taking our eyes off of your sovereignty, your purpose, your will, and your word going forth. May we not get caught up in incidentals, in things that don't matter. And Lord, may we realize that even when we are unfaithful, you are faithful.
1: And realize, O oh Lord, that when you desire to use us, you are not dependent upon us. We can't thwart your work. Lord, I thank you that you are able to save
0: by many, and you are able to save by none. You are able by yourself to accomplish your purpose, your end. So, Lord, it is with joy and thanksgiving that today we place our hands again uh, under your authority and worship you as the only and true God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Shepherd, our King,
1: and our Friend.